I hope you have your Bibles with you tonight in some form or another. We want to talk tonight about Moses, the song of Moses, and the song of the Lamb. And um, the Scripture is read so nicely tonight by Hilda Reichert. But if you turn back to that same Scripture, Revelation chapter 15, that's a serious message, Revelation 15. It's, uh, it's a sobering message. It's maybe a message sometimes that our modern world would not be too politically correct, but it's the truth. And we need to take a hard look at it tonight. The song of Moses and the Lamb. Let's start, if you don't mind, with verse 1. Then I saw another angel, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Notice how it's introduced. This is great and marvelous, what we're about to see here. Having seven last plagues. For some reason we don't think of plagues being great and marvelous. But the introduction here is that these mighty works of God are great and marvelous. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. Another way of saying that, the wrath of God is finished. Which means that there were plagues before this. God's judgments have not been idle. If He had not had judgments in the land, you wouldn't be here tonight. Christianity would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Godly people would have been obliterated. But God's judgments are in the land. And they have been in the history. I want to flash back, if you don't mind, for a moment to the seven trumpets. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the seven trumpets, but I want to spend a little time, and I can't have time to bore into them. But I want to uh, take a look. If you look back at chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 15, begins to tell us about the seventh trumpet. Now, I believe, and Adventists have taught traditionally, and I think correctly, that we're living in the time of the seventh trumpet. So when this trumpet is done, it's finished. Now those trumpets are God's judgments. God's judgments through history. We have the seven seals, the seven churches, and then you have that principle of repeat and enlarge, and they cover the time from the cross to the coming of Jesus. So the seven churches, and then you have repeat and enlarge with the seven seals, and you have the repeat and enlarge of the seven trumpets. But each of them approach it from a different uh, aspect. The seven trumpets are God's response to evil in the Christian dispensation, if you please. If you look at verse 15, it said, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That verse sums up the finish, if you please. And of that seventh trumpet, the seven last plagues are part of it. They finish it. And the kingdoms of this world becomes the kingdom of our Savior. For he's king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, if you look down at uh, verse 18, for, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. Do we live in an angry world today? I've never seen more anger. It's like the devil and his evil angels have just ratcheted up, angry. People are just mad. The nations are mad. Angry. And your wrath has come. They're not just angry at each other, they're angry at God. Uh, let me just uh, give you just a quick uh, view, if you don't mind, of these, uh, of these seven last plagues for just a moment. 
I mean of the seven trumpets. The first, the trumpets come in two sets, a set of four and a set of three. These are judgments against the enemies of God's people. The first four, the first four trumpets take down pagan Rome. Those trumpets, and you can see the, the symbols there, but remember that pagan Rome was a great enemy of God's people. Uh, when, you, when you look at that Colosseum in Rome, how many Christians lost their lives? How many prayers of mothers and fathers begging God for deliverance? In fact, the whole scene of the seven trumpets starts out with this mighty angel, which I think is a representation of Christ, not a created angel, by the way, just to make sure. And he's taking the prayers of God's people like incense, and he's presenting them. And there's an answer in heaven to the prayers on earth. And it's lightning and thunder and earthquake. And then you get the response of heaven and those seven mighty trumpets. Rome, that great pagan empire. That so per, you have the ten years of the persecution of Diocletian. They would have wiped Christianity off the face of the earth. There's never been a more despot than Nero who took the life of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. These were evil people. Wretched. And God says, I think I've had enough. I heard the prayers. And He opened up the floodgates. Rome, the city of Rome that had not and being invaded for 800 years. 800 years. In 410 A.D., the Goths invaded and breached the walls of Rome. In 66 years, down to the date of 476, the lights of Rome, the sun, the moon, the stars the leadership of Rome, it was turned off and turned into darkness. And it began the great, called the great Dark Ages. In 66 years, the great empire was finished because God ordered it. But then out of those ashes arose another enemy of God's people. You're familiar. How many of you have been to an evangelistic meeting? Let me see your hands. All right. You know when that terrible 1260 years of the supremacy of papal Rome began. And it began in 538 when Justinian, the Roman emperor, by law and definition, made the papal see the Pope of Rome in charge of all Christian ministers. And that started the clock ticking. But God also raises up forces. In those last three woes, those last three trumpets, you hear the angel saying, Woe! Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of what is going to happen. By the way, we're living in those woes. God often sometimes uses other movements to check other movements. I was just doing a little reading. I said by 600 A.D., the papal see had become utterly corrupt the popes had all kinds of concubines they were you they had a thing called simony where you buy the office and then you give it to your children and they were given it was a mess i don't have to get into it you can read the history yourself it's common history in 570 a.d a man was born by the name of mohammed have you ever heard him some years ago, you may not have been too acquainted with him, but most Americans today are quite acquainted with him. By 600 A.D., we have the Muslim 
the Muslim movement beginning to start. And God allows the Muslim movement to rise up in order to check the power and the apostasy of Christianity. Not true Christianity, but apostate Christianity. And that power has grown. I don't have time to get into to all of that, but under that sixth trumpet, you have four powerful forces that arise in order to stop this power or at least check it. You have the rise of the Muslims. You have the rise of Protestantism. Sometimes God uses both negative and positive forces. That mighty angel that comes down from heaven, one foot on the earth, one foot on the sea, I think represents the mighty Protestant Reformation. And out of that Reformation would come the remnant of God's people that would focus on the books of Daniel and Revelation, and they would have an end-time message for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So you have the rise of the Muslims, you have the rise of the Protestantism, you have the rise of the remnant, and in chapter 11, you have the rise of atheism. And those powers we still contend with across the face of the earth. Now, I want to share something here that I think you'll find interesting. When the Protestant Reformation took hold, by the way, this is, this is um, 2017. In October 31, we will celebrate the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And there are voices around anticipating that saying the Reformation is over, it's done, it's finished. I'd like to be one of those voices that says, no, it's not. We're not going to give up Sola Scriptura for your counsels and your apostasy, Protestants. We're not giving it up. But when the Protestant Reformation arose, Charles V ordered the Protestant, the, the princes of the Pro German Protestant um, states to appear before him in spires. I've been there. And he demanded their loyalty and to turn over their Protestant preachers and to return to the papal power. And that's what we call the protest of the princes. They stood up and said, you cannot dictate to our conscience. And that started called the great protest, called Protestantism. Charles V was absolutely furious. He stood and told them what he would do. He says, I'm going to go back to Spain, I'm going to raise an army, and I will decimate your states. I will destroy your villages, I will destroy your towns, I will... Well, it was pretty awful language, but you get the picture. So he did. He meant every word of it. And this is in general terms. So he went back, raised an army, and he was planning to go with that army to Germany. When guess who invades Spain? The Ottoman Empire. I don't have time to get into the Ottoman Empire, except to say this is very fascinating. By the way... For a, just a sidekick, you may get on the internet, people make fun of the Adventist position on this, say those dates are Let me tell you, we know those dates are solid now. There's been a lot of new research. And listen, the prophets are never wrong. You just have to wait a little bit sometimes. So I, have, I don't have time to get into all the dates and all that. It would be interesting to do that, but I'm not going to do that. But what I want to note here is that while Charles V was being preoccupied by the Muslims, the Protestant Reformation grew in such power that it became unstoppable. And out of that gave birth to the United States of America and the Constitution. The Constitution that we have is a Protestant document. It's based basically on Scripture and the Golden Rule, which do unto others you'd have them do to you. It's the greatest document probably in human history. 
And as a nation, we felt like we need to export those principles everywhere. And we've endeavored to do that at times, many times. Now watch what happens. As Protest biblical religion, Protestantism grows, what happens to the Muslim Ottoman Empire? It goes down until it becomes known, as my father used to say, the sick man of the East. And if you go back and study that prophecy, you'll find that the Byzantine Christian emperor actually came under the power of the Muslims, the Ottoman Empire. But at the end of those prophecies, it becomes reverse. And the Ottoman Empire is so weak and so powerless that it has to depend on the Christian powers of Europe and become submissive. Now you know why Turkey is part of NATO. The reason I'm giving you that because now I want to show you something very interesting. I'm going to skip that one. These uh, are the papal visits to the United States. And I needed to refresh my memory. I really date myself real good here. But in 1969, I was a senior in college. 1969 was the first time a pope ever had ever visited the United States of America. That was the first time. It came on the heels of Vatican II. Any of you remember Vatican II? If you don't, you should study it because that Vatican II changed and opened the doors to America for the papal see. I just read an article written in 2015 by a Catholic scholar and they were debating as to whether the Vatican II actually endorsed religious freedom because it used such words like human dignity and people should be let have their own conscience and it sounds really good but this Vatican scholar or not Vatican scholar but this Catholic scholar argued that either if you take the best case scenario or the worst case scenario that Rome never changed its attitude about the separation of church and state all it did in Vatican II was change its methods but the American people have bought it hook line and sinker So that's the first. And then the second one, of course, was John, Pope John Paul II. If you remember, he became very famous. He's the one that he and uh, President Reagan worked together with the CIA. By the way, the CIA has a special relationship with the Papal See because the Papal See has better intelligence than the CIA. And it all happened back there. And we saw the ground zero, Poland became ground zero. We saw the whole Soviet Union come down and that whole thing. And it was held as a great movement in human history. The Berlin Wall came down. The Pope was applauded. Reagan was applauded. They were given the credit for having all that happen. Well, I'll be, I'll be one of the first ones to say that uh, state-sponsored communism, state-sponsored atheism and communism is not something I would ever want to buy into. They certainly didn't even live by their own constitution and give people freedom. And they were, uh, their religion, by the way, is, was atheism. Today, it's the Russian Orthodox Church. It's the state church. I don't have time to get into that. Ask me about that sometime. But I, I want to I move down because I want you to see. You see it up on the screen there again. You can see Pope John Paul the second visited the United States. I'm sorry, the writing is so small. You can see that he visited seven times. And then you see uh, Pope uh, Benedict XVI came to Washington, D.C. By the way, he's the one when somebody asked President George Bush what he saw when he looked into the Pope's eyes. He said, I see God. Now, if you know anything about the statements 
of the papacy concerning the papal see, that should send some cold chills up and down your back. But we're not done yet. And then we have a Jesuit pope. Now the Jesuits don't have a real good reputation in the world. They've been kicked out of about over 80 countries, Catholic countries, and city-states because of their political maneuvering. You can check it out yourself. You can also go read um, some of their vows and the oaths they take. But this particular Jesuit pope has taken the world by storm. He's the fourth pope to visit the United States. When he visited, he visited Washington, D.C. in 2015, September, and there he addressed, no religious leader to my knowledge has ever done that, addressed both houses of Congress with his own agenda. That's the United States, this great, once great Protestant country. Went to Philadelphia, stood there in uh, Independence Hall, talked about a lot of wonderful things, about liberty, Everybody's saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? He really believes in religious liberty. And then turned around a few months later in January of 2016, meets the Pope of the Russian Orthodox. They have 250 million adherents. Meets him in Cuba. And they issued a joint declaration. In the joint declaration, they both roundly, strongly, vehemently condemned proselyting. Now, proselyting is just another word for sharing your faith. And it's a cornerstone of religious liberty. If you don't have the right to share your faith, you don't have religious liberty. And the Russian Orthodox Pope, by the name of Kirill, went back to Russia and they put together most draconian, anti-religious liberty um, uh, law that, that was worse than the communist. You can't even pray in your own home with somebody else lest you be... You, you have to be in a certified church with a certified person in order to share your faith. You can't hand out literature on the street. You can't pray with somebody on the street. You cannot do that kind of thing. It's against the law. So this Jesuit Pope gave the world a full display about talking out of both sides of his mouth. But the world little noted. But now notice this. Remember what I said about the Muslims? The papacy came up. power of the Muslims came up. And when the papacy went down and the Reformation came up, the power of the Muslims went down. Still with me? Watch this. This comes from Public Broadcast Service, Frontline, and it's called The Evolution of Islamic Terrorism by John Moore. I have compared it to the timing visits to the United States per U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops. That's where I've got the information. Vatican II was finished in 1965. Notice carefully. But John Moore and Public Broadcast Services say that the dawn of modern terrorism, Islamic terrorism, terrorism, started in 1968 and went to 1979. So Vatican II finishes in 65, and Pope Benedict makes the very first visit of any pope to America in 1969. I find that interesting. And this is when you have radical Palestinians launching hijacks and kidnappings, bombings, shootings. 1972, you have the Munich Olympic kidnappings and killing then he says the next one started the rise of state-sponsored of terrorism. And he says that goes from 1979 to 1991. Pope John Paul's first visit 
came in 1979. And he visits the U.S. the first time, followed by seven more visits with the last one in 1999. And that's when you get the Iranian and Syrian sponsors of Hezbollah, pioneered the use of suicide bombers, 1983 killing of 241 Marines in Lebanon, the Pan Am Flight 103 bombing killed 270 people over Lockerbie, Scotland. And then the next section is from 1991 to 2001. And he calls this the rise of global terror. So he's showing these different stages of terror. And of course, you can read. I'm not going to take time to read all of that there. But of course, in 2001, the World Trade Center came down and the Pentagon was attacked. How many of you remember where you were on September 11, 2001? That's exactly what I thought. I remember distinctly where I was. We're actually having a meeting of the district superintendents, and I said to them, this is a watershed. The world will change. And the world has changed. And let me ask you a question. Has, the ter has Islamic terrorism gotten less since we've had all of this embracing of the papacy, or has it gotten worse? I think everybody will tell you it's gotten worse. You, you, I mean, even the secular people will tell you it's gotten worse. In fact, the United States in the past some years has spent huge amounts of treasure and blood trying to stop this stuff, and every time they cut off the head of one of it, it grows another seven. Why? The reason is, is because this nation is abandoning biblical Christianity and re-embracing the papacy, and so God's withdrawing His hand and allowing these Muslim powers to come up and check it. Just like He did before. Now that's going to make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And let me just say this so I'm not misunderstood. I'll be misunderstood anyway, but at least I'll have the record straight. There's not a soul in the world the Lord doesn't love. He loves every Muslim. He loves every Protestant. He loves every Catholic. He loves every Adventist. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we should be filled with the unselfish love of God. And let me add something else. Don't think that these political parties are going to be able to fix anything. Don't set your hope on some political star rising or falling. God knows what He's doing. He's playing this whole thing, and He's putting checks and balances on it. But the world today is preoccupied. Europe is preoccupied with its safety. The United States, we're still spending huge amounts of money right this moment trying to stay safe from Islamic terrorism. I'm not a prophet or the son of one, but it's going to get worse if we continue to embrace the papal power. And it's pretty astounding when you bring the Pope of Rome before a United States Congress. It's pretty astounding when there's not one Protestant left on the um, Supreme Court. Now somebody's going to say, well, the last one was a Protestant. Check in his background and find out who trained him. You'll see the fingertips, uh, fingerprints of Jesuits all over everything this nation is doing. So I wanted, I wanted to picture that for a moment, but then I, I want to come back. I did have some notes here. Looks like they ran away. Maybe they're still in my Bible. There they are. It's a good thing. All right. I want to come back to verse 2, chapter, chapter 15, verse 2. Chapter 15, verse 2. And look at that again. Uh, Revelation, chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. I want to look at that word victory. 
Now, people don't like that. I mean, I, I've heard so many apologetic Christians. I've heard a lot of apologetic Adventists say, Oh, please, please don't talk about triumphalism. I mean, you know, we're all poor sinners. We're all, that's all true. But we have a mighty Savior who is into winning. And He's into victory. And He prophesies He's going to have victory. And he prophesies that if we stay with him, we'll have victory too. Now listen, this scene that you're seeing in chapter 15 does not take place on this side of the coming of Jesus. This scene in chapter 15, in these first few verses, takes place on the other side, after the coming of Jesus, after the saints are in heaven, and they are standing on the sea of glass that's mingled with fire, and they are singing a song. Verse 3, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works. Why do they sing that song? They're looking back at the seven last plagues. And they're on the other side saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Thank you for raining down those plagues. We're grateful. Your ways are just and true and marvelous. That's the picture. I told you it may not be comfortable. But that's because we have sometimes a warped understanding of just how evil, evil is. We've lived in its soup so long that we don't have an understanding of why God hates it so much. Let's take a look, if you don't mind. Before I get there, I'm going to talk about that word victory for a moment. This, this scene that takes place on the other side of the second coming, on the sea of glass, and the people who sing this song, the song of Moses and the Lamb, these, these are the remnant who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. This song is not a song that the apostles will sing, or the prophets will sing, or that Abraham will sing. It's not even the song that a lot of great Christians will sing. They may be there. But this song is a song that the remnant will sing, who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And the reason I know that is because the Bible says that they have gotten victory They've become overcomers. And I'm going to tell you what they've gotten victory over. They've gotten victory over self because they put self and selfishness to death. By the way, we're going to live in an unselfish heaven and we need to be preparing for that now. I'm tired of the selfishness and the greed of this world. They've gotten victory over the beast because of their faith in God. They've gotten victory over the image of the beast because the image of Christ has been formed within them. They have gotten victory over the mark of the beast because the Father's name, His character, is written in their intellect and His character, His unselfish love, His goodness and His righteousness is their choice. And they have overcome the numbers of the beast. They've overcome 666. And they've overcome it with 777. Amen. 777, if you look in the Greek, you'll find that using the Greek numerical value of the letters of the cross of Calvary. In fact, if you go to back to chapter 12, it says they overcame Him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. They're overcomers. we got to get out of this thing 
we got to get out of this thing where people say, look, if you want to be an overcomer, you must be some kind of legalist. I'm so tired of hearing that kind of thing. I'm telling you, folk, your, my Bible says, and your Bible says, that if we're going to sing that song of Moses and the Lamb on the other side, we're going to be overcomers. Now, I want to say unequivocally, none of us will ever, none of us can ever give one, one molecule, one atom of merit. Jesus earned all the merit on Calvary's cross. We have no merit of our own. We have nothing to offer. But let me tell you, we're not going to win by our own power either. It's His power. It's when we unite our pitifulness with His powerfulness that we become overcomers. So let's be about it. What do you say by the grace of God? And we still have, praise God, an advocate in heaven. So I want to look at verse 3 for a moment. It says, and the song of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So the song of Moses, if you please, in one sense, starts the Scripture. And the song of the Lamb ends the whole scene, and it ends Scripture. Let's take first a look at the, at the uh, song of Moses. If you don't mind turning to Exodus chapter 14. I know you know the story, so I'm not going to try to retell the story, but I am going to point out a few things here so that we get a picture and a feel, uh, if you don't mind. Exodus chapter 14, you go back. By the way, the Song of Moses is found in Exodus 15, and the Song of the Lamb is referred to in Revelation 15. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Here we go. Exodus. Exodus chapter 14. Now let me give you just a picture, if you don't mind, without taking too much time, but let's look at verse, let's look at verse, um, at, at verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 2, the last part. God speaks to, to Moses and He says, You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered, they're confused by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. I don't have time to get into the geography of this, but I'm telling you that I don't believe that what's called Mount Sinai today is the real Mount Sinai. And if you do a little research on that, you can find out it's a lot of good archaeology stuff. But what you really have, if you, if you just see it in your mind, you've got the delta of Egypt with all of its fingers, and if you follow the Mediterranean coast right up that's the shortest route right into palestine and you would come right up against the philistines in the southern part that'd be the shortest route but god does something very strange the cloud has them turn south and they go through you read ellen white's book patriarchs and prophets about the picture they go through these mountainous wadis or valleys or flash flood valleys if you please they're dry riverbeds and these towering hills dry desert mountains on every side and they follow that through and then it opens up you can see it on the map on a huge beach but there are mountains to the south and to the north are Egyptian uh, army posts, etc. But there they are. And it seems like the stupidest thing in the world when you look at it. Why in the world would God do that? And, and Pharaoh came to the natural conclusion. They're trapped. Now the Egyptians were mad. They'd kind of recovered from the shock. They'd buried their firstborn. You'd think that'd be enough. But let me tell you, sin is stubborn. And if you look at the next verse there, you'll find that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, did, let me ask you a question. Did God harden Satan's heart? Or did Satan harden his own heart? Because he refused to be submissive. The same thing with Pharaoh. God just knew what this man was made of, and he worked it out so he was on the throne. Because God knew he would never, ever yield to him in any kind of a way. And God was going to use his stubbornness his own stubbornness, his own choice. And every time that God moved, he'd only get more stubborn and more determined. Why do you think that Satan gets up at the end of the millennium 
after he kneels and says, just and true are your ways, and he gets right up and he tries to get a whole army together, the whole world to go up and to take the city because sin is horribly stubborn. So they pursued them. They were mad. They were mad because their land was devastated. The ten plagues had left Egypt in a mess. Crops were destroyed. Much of their animal life, livestock was gone. They, not a lot of them didn't feel good if you look at all the stuff they went through. And then they lost their firstborn, and they're mad. And guess who they're blaming it on? They're blaming it on Israel. Who do you think people are going to blame the effects of the seven last plagues on in the end of time? You can figure it out. And to add insult to injury, Israel left Egypt loaded. They went to them and in those moments said, you know, I like that gold piece and I like that gold and I noticed you had a lot of silver. And they went out and they took the wealth of Egypt with them. And now these folk think they've come to their senses. They haven't come to their senses. They're just, their stubbornness has made them foolish. So we're going to trap them. We could, you could see what started going through the minds of the Israelites when in, in verse 10, 11, they, they saw Pharaoh draw near. You can just see the reaction among the Israelites. By the way, there's probably two million of these folk. There were 600,000 men, but you add their wives to it and their children to it. We got a lot of people. Then you add their livestock to it. We've got a huge multitude of people here. And through that multitude, fear, and you can read the struggle of their faith. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. And you can, you can hear them say that. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Why can he say that? You've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army with their long knives behind them. And Moses says to them, don't be afraid. He can say that based on experience. Uh, if there was anything about this generation of people that was brought out of the land of Egypt, it was because these folk were just very forgetful. How many times have we been afraid because we've forgotten? And the Lord began to work, you know, the picture, that mighty cloud that contained the angel of the Lord rose up and came between the Egyptian army and Israel. And then the Bible says, and it was darkness to them. They couldn't go forward. They couldn't do anything. And the Bible says that the wind blew all night on the water. Listen, there was another time when the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters and that was at creation and in hovering over those waters he separated the water from the land some have said this is like another creation where god is carving out his own people his own nation has never been anything like it on the face of the earth no one has ever seen anything like it it was like god was saying to pharaoh actually saying it to satan Listen, I'm in the business of claiming, reclaiming planet Earth. He said through Moses to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. Well, if Israel's is his firstborn, does that mean he has other children? He wasn't just trying to save Israel. He was trying to save the firstborn so he could save the rest of them. And he says, if you don't let my firstborn go, I'll kill your firstborn. Let them go. So here's Pharaoh now. You think that maybe he'd catch on again. He's confronted with a supernatural cloud of darkness. On the other side, all night the wind blows. In the morning dawn, a, a, a huge 
strip of land that is unbelievably dry. And that multitude walks through there. And all day they march, and most of the night they march. And finally, somehow, the Bible doesn't say, but I'm just speculating a little bit, that cloud lifts, because to the Israelites it was light, to Pharaoh's darkness, so maybe it's in the wee hours of the morning, and that cloud lifts, and Pharaoh's eyes are open. They must have bulged out. That would have been the time to have gone home right there. I mean, he, nobody's ever seen anything like it. Here is Israel escaping through this thing. The water piled up on every side. And I don't know who his heathen priests are, but listen, evil will always lose because evil is not perfect. It always has flaws. It, it's almost hard to believe the stupidity. And he orders his soldiers his chariots to go after these Israelites. There's that angel, the light. And so they plunge in there. They're closing. they got horses and chariots. They're closing on on the last part of Israel. And I don't, for sake of time, you can just read it for yourself. The Bible says that God troubled the army of Egypt. And the word trouble there can also be translated confused them. By the way, the name of Babylon is confusion. And if I've understood the Scripture correctly, it's that plague of darkness in the seven last plagues that halts the progress of the mark of the beast and saves God's people and brings confusion. And then the Bible says that He, that he, bound, he bound or tore off the wheels of the chariot, took off the wheels of the chariot. It can also be translated as bound, the wheels of the chariots. So they're rushing through here and all of a sudden their, their, their chariots are grinding to a halt. Have you ever, have you ever been to one of those tractor pulls? They got that juggernaut on the back of them trying to see how far they can pull that thing before that juggernaut puts a halt to it. And it's just like that. You can see those tractors, that thing just move, keeps moving forward and it gets to a certain place. No matter how much power that tractor has, it's just going to grind to a halt. And these chariots are grinding to a halt. They can't go forward. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, those Egyptian soldiers start shouting to one another. The Lord fights. Our Lord is a great warrior, by the way. Maybe we don't like that imagery, but let me tell you, the book of Revelation is riff with it. It's clear. God, the Lord Jesus, is a great warrior. And God became angry with the Egyptians. And they said, God, the Lord fights. He fights against the Egyptians and He fights for Israel. So what do you think they did? They turn tail and begin to rush back. Now the morning light is breaking. All of Israel is now standing safe on the other shore. And they're watching this whole Egyptian army turn tail. And they're rushing right back down into the middle of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea. And then God says to Moses, stretch out your hand. But the shock turned into joy. Now I'm not saying that we're glad when anybody dies. But let me tell you, that army was a terrible threat. And God shut it down. And He did it for His people. And they got it. They understood it. And they begin to sing the song of Moses. And you can find that song, I can't go all the way through it tonight for sake of time, but you can find that song in chapter 15. And Moses starts the song with the chorus, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. There have been many battles where horses have been killed with spears and guns and what have you, and people have been slaughtered on the field of battle. But there's been no battle that I know of where they took the horse and the rider and the war chariots and threw them into the sea. 
I will sing to the Lord. And then if you look down at verse 2, it says, notice the word my. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army, He cast into the sea. His chosen captains also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them and they sank to the bottom like a stone. Then He pictures the enemy in verse 9. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire, my vengeance, my emotional anger will be satisfied on the Israelites. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. And then the song answers. And it says, you, talking about the Lord, you blew with your wind. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters who is like you oh lord i want to tell you that there are seven other mighty plagues coming on the earth in the first three plagues of egypt the israelites suffered but the seven last plagues of egypt Israel did not suffer. God made a difference. In the seven last plagues in the end of time, they will not fall on God's people. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to be without suffering and hunger and thirst and difficulty and challenges and the unbelievable. We don't even know what's in front of us. There's no group that's ever going to go through what we're going to go through here in the end of time. My brothers and sisters, my appeal tonight is let us lay hold of this mighty warrior God that we have. He is able to conquer us on the inside. He is able to conquer our enemies. He is able to bring us through the seven last plagues. And He's able to put us on that sea of glass. I, I, I know that we feel sometimes a little strange. By the way, go back to the Song of Moses for a moment. In verse 17, in my summation, Moses says, Lord, you will bring them home. You'll bring them into the place your sanctuary. It'll be our dwelling place. If you go back to Revelation chapter 15 and look at verse, at verse um, 3 to 4, we get a picture of the Song of the Lamb because these two are blended. And they're blended for obvious reasons. Look at verse 3, starting in the middle. Great and marvelous are your ways. This is the song of the Lamb. Your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, you King of saints. The atheists out here, they whine. They say, you're a God. You know, he's so mean. Look at all those people he killed in the flood. Look at all those Egyptians he drowned in the sea. Your God's a mean God. But the Bible declares that God's ways are just and true and righteous that they would stand the test of the courts of heaven. God's ways are just and true. Jesus, by the way, in chapter 19, I'm hurrying for time, Jesus is pictured as the great warrior riding on a white horse followed by the armies of heaven. In chapter 17, he, those that are with Him are called uh, chosen and faithful. I want to be one of those. That's because the world doesn't understand how terrible evil is. Let me tell you, on the other side, I know this doesn't sound politically correct, but it's the truth. On that sea of glass, mingled with fire, on the other side, there's going to be celebration over the destruction of evil. Now let me tell you something clear, because we don't get this and our atheist friends don't get it. 
Evil, in theory, hurts nobody. It has to have an agent. You can have all the theory in the world, but evil requires an agent. And we've seen what evil has done to this world. And we're going to be celebrating, not because anybody wanted anybody to lose their life, not because the saints really wanted anybody to be destroyed, but these people have destroyed themselves by their own choices. And if they had been left alive, we see at the end of the millennium what they would do. They would take the New Jerusalem and kill everybody in it. They would tear God off His throne. By the way, they're not wise enough to run the universe. Only God is able to run the universe. And He's the one who gave His only begotten Son so you and I can stand on that sea of glass. Brothers and sisters, this is for the remnant. They're going to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Let me, let me just say, let me just say this. That, that the singing there and the singing on the side of the Red Sea is celebrating the destruction not only of evil, but the agents of evil. I mean, my, my father was in World War II. Some of you have been in wars. Wars are horrible. But when Nazism was finally put down and the empire of Japan, what happened in America? People poured into the streets all over this nation celebrating the end of Nazism. By the way, anybody want to bring Hitler back to life? You want to bring his Nazis back to life? We have the, we have the blood of sick. I, I stood in one of the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, concentration camps and I saw the horrors of what this Nazism had done. And I, I was so moved by it. I stood there before some of the names that are put there and I was by myself. And I said, oh Lord, do not let their voice die let their blood continue to cry to you from the ground until you answer with justice listen if we can do that over some war here and you think about that coliseum and all the terrible things that pagan wrong do you think we're not going to rejoice over the destruction of pagan rome are we not going to rejoice of the destruction of those who instigated the Inquisition. There's never been any more horrible tortures. Millions of people lost their lives. The Albigenses were slaughtered. The Waldensians were slaughtered. And what about the slaughter of Islam? The slaughter of Jews, the slaughter of Christians, the suicides and all the terrible things. Just look at what's going on in Mosul right now. Look what those poor people have been through. You think we're not going to celebrate the destruction of that kind of a thing? We have a mighty warrior. And Jesus is going to put an end to it. Are we not going to rejoice over the destruction of Nazism and fascism that destroyed nearly 60, 70 million people in World War II? Are we not going to rejoice over the destruction of communism? Russia lost 20 million people, China 70 million, Cambodia 2 to 3 million, and tens of millions of others around the world. You mean we're not going to stand on the other side and say with the angels of God, Hallelujah! They're gone! They're finished! Well, we stand at the edge of the Red Sea. Before us, the remnant that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Before us is a sea of impossibility. Giving that final message and being victorious is going to take a mighty leader. 
And there's no human on earth that can lead. But there's no leader like our Savior. There's no leader like Jesus. Behind us, Babylon is gathering her forces. And as one dear papal prelate said to someone, this time we're not going to make any mistakes. They, they learn too. But we have a mighty warrior. We have a mighty leader. Here is the question that you and I must answer if we are going to be part of standing on that sea of glass and celebrating the destruction of evil. And here's the question. Will we trust our leader? Will we obey by His grace and power His commands? Will we trust our leader, for surely He's coming soon. We're going to sing that great hymn. Gene's going to lead us in it. Lo, He comes. Why don't you stand with me?
Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for sending your great warrior son. I want him in my heart. I want him conquering everything in my heart. And oh Lord, Father in heaven, may all power and glory and honor be given to him. And may he conquer all the forces of the earth. And he will. And finally, even Satan himself and all the redeemed will rejoice over that. But here we are in the end of time, Father, and we've been called to someday sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. For great and marvelous are your works. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, put it into our hearts that we will trust our leader, our our Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.